can you believe it? I just saw an advertisement, 40 to 60% off build your faith deals. Can you believe it? You can build your faith for 40 to 60% off. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and yeah, I did see that advertisement, but you got to be kidding me. You can build your faith without 40 to 60% off. You can build your faith by looking at the Bible. And that's why we're here, because we want to build our faith, and we know that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we're going to do that, maybe not for free, because following Jesus does cost us something, but we're not going to have to buy products at 40 to 60% off or whatever the price might be in order to build our faith. We're going to trust God, and we're going to build our faith together. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I am the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, a great church with a lot of wonderful people. We uh, enjoy bringing this podcast to you because we want it to help you, and we hope it does. We do it for your benefit, not for ours, and we're glad to do it. And today we're going to do a couple of things here on the program. The uh, first is we're going to tackle a rather challenging parable. Uh, Jesus told a lot of parables. I like the parables. It's my, maybe my favorite thing to study. I don't know. It's hard anymore to pick a favorite. And, but we're going to talk about this very challenging parable. It's very challenging to interpret. And if I don't talk too much, we're going to get to 10 things that I think, because I'm always thinking, and I'm thinking again this week that we might talk about 10 things I've been thinking about. So let's start off with this parable, and uh, I want to read it to you. It's a, maybe a familiar parable. It's, it is one that uh, challenges us a lot. I'm going to read it from the Bible I usually read and use for studying, the Christian Standard Bible. It's an excellent English translation. It may not be the same as yours, but I think you'll recognize the story if you've read Luke chapter 6. If not, it's an interesting story, and um, it is challenging, but I'm sure we can get through it and learn from it. Starting with verse 1 in Luke chapter 16. Now he said to the disciples, now here, here in this context, this is Jesus. You can tell that from what went before, and we know that the reference is to he, Jesus. Now he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to him, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. 
Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, now, that is a challenging, challenging portion of Scripture. Again, it's a parable. It's a parable, but it's also followed by some what we will describe as wisdom sayings that occur toward the end of the passage. And we should not, we should not confuse the wisdom sayings with the parable as we try to understand what's being said here. But it is a difficult parable. The more you read about it, the more the interpreters say it's difficult. Uh, really difficult. And the more I read, the more I heard it was difficult, the more I thought, well, so then let's not bother with it at all. Let's go on to something else. We can talk about something nice and familiar and easy. Just kidding. We're not going to shy away from this. We don't shrink from the Bible, even the challenging parts. Isn't that right? Of course that's right. We're going to meet God's challenge and the challenge of understanding the Bible head on. Why would we shrink from that? See, I've long worked, and, and maybe you have too, off the assumption that God intends for us to understand the Bible. Now, why else, and it's an obvious question, why else would he give it to us if he didn't want us to understand it? Why would he give us a book that's just meant to confuse and confound and frustrate us? Well, now, I can tell you for sure there are sometimes you'll find confusing parts in the Bible, and you'll find some parts that are pretty confounding, and at times you may be frustrated by trying to figure out what in the world is going on and why things happened the way they did and all of that. So, so I'm not trying to say we can't bump up against some of those hard difficulties. But what I am saying is, and I've discovered this time after time when I've looked, no matter what the Bible passage is, if I look long enough and study carefully enough and use the wisdom that's been passed down from wiser people than I— that guess what? God helps us come to understanding of the Bible, even these difficult passages. So we're going we're gonna to assume that, and we're going to tackle this, and we're not going to be discouraged or frustrated. We're going to come to some wonderful conclusions that will help us. Are you ready? All right, so now let's, let's make sure we agree on one thing, and you may not agree with me, but, I, but I'm convinced as I've studied this that this is a key to understanding this passage. When we look carefully at this, we discover that while most English translations, they divide this in paragraphs, and, and the dialogue is divided carefully and appropriately to our English style, our understanding of the way you should do that in written English. But when it gets to verse 8, then in this particular translation anyway, it's one long paragraph through verse 13, which is the portion we read, Luke 16, 1 through 13. So the last part is one long paragraph. And I've read some interesting things about how to understand this, and I came across one guy's idea, and, and I'm convinced that he's right, and it makes a lot of sense to me. He says, we need to make sure we understand that, that the parable ends with what we call the first part of verse 8. 
And then what follows is Jesus talking about things in light of the parable he just told to help people understand. So in other words, what comes after the first part of verse 8 is, is commentary by Jesus. Well, and wisdom, and I referred earlier to those being wisdom sayings, and they are. But they aren't a key part of the parable. They aren't part of the story. So when we work from that particular decision, it makes a lot more sense. Now, some of you are going to say, well, wait a minute, I looked at my Bible, and there's a paragraph here, and there's a paragraph here. What are you talking about dividing that paragraph like that? By taking the first part of verse 8 and saying that's part of the parable, and the rest is part of what Jesus is saying after the parable. Well, keep in mind that all translators have to make some decisions about paragraphs. Paragraphs can be enormously helpful to us when we try to make sense of what God is telling us in the Bible. They're very good interpretive tools. I use that all the time. And we learned in school, you and I, when we studied English and we learned something about writing, that the first sentence of a paragraph is important because that's the main thing we're talking about, and then we describe things related to that first sentence. So we wouldn't say something like, the cat was a beautiful blue color, and I love spaghetti on Tuesdays. Those would not be statements in the same paragraph. And yes, I know cats aren't usually blue, and I don't know if you love spaghetti, but you get the idea that mixes thoughts in a way that's not appropriate. So paragraphs can be helpful, but they are also decisions that are made by the interpreters. They may or may not reflect the best understanding of the text. Now, I'm convinced our English translations are good. I don't have problems with them. Every now and then we'll run into places where one group of translators will say something one way and one will say it another, and that's fine. That just helps us understand because we then begin to ask, well, why did they say it this way and why did they say it that way? And how does that help us come to a better understanding of what God is saying to us? That doesn't bother me because I think they're just trying to do the best job they know how and to help us in the best way they can help us. So that that all fits together fine. And so I'm I'm going to invite you, and I'm going to hope you'll agree with me to think about this this passage, this section of scripture from Luke chapter 16, as the parable ending in the first part of verse eight, and then continuing with Jesus making some very important statements after that. And I think some of those are are more like parables, and I think when we look at the at them in that light, they make a lot more sense, and they're a lot less confusing. So I started looking around to see if there were any English translations that agreed with this idea that I had read in one commentary and that I that I had been thinking through, and I, I, I'm just stunned at how much clarity this helps when I came to that conclusion and agreed with that guy. Are there other English translations that divide up the text in that way so that the paragraph is different? Well, I didn't have any success with that. Uh, there are a lot the same. There are some differences. Anytime you look at those kinds of things, you're going to find a lot the same and some differences. And I don't know how to explain that. It just is. But I decided I would check the message. Some of you may be familiar with the message. A man named Eugene Peterson gave us this English translation that used to be called a paraphrase. I I don't exactly know if that's appropriate now because it's been vetted by a lot of people. It just says things differently. Yes, yeah, probably, yeah, it is. 
more interpretive than some other translations. But it's not like it was done to harm us. It was done by a faithful pastor who wanted to help us understand what God is saying. So I want to read this same passage, Luke chapter 16, from the message. And, and I think you'll begin to catch on a little bit of what I'm talking about. And if not, I'd encourage you to get a copy of the message and take a look, or maybe you can look online, or if you use the Bible app, there's a copy of the message there. But let's take a look from the message. Jesus said to his disciples, there was a, once a rich man who had a manager. He got reports that the manager had been taking advantage of his position by running up huge personal expenses. So he called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? You're fired, and I want a complete audit of your books. The manager said to himself, what am I going to do? I've lost my job as manager. I'm not strong enough for a laboring job, and I'm too proud to beg. Ah, I've got a plan. Here's what I'll do. Then when I'm turned out into the street, people will take me into their houses. Then he went at it. One after another, he called in the people who were in debt to his master. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He replied, a hundred jugs of olive oil. The manager said, here, take your bill. Sit down here quick now, write 50. To the next, he said, and you, what do you owe? He answered, a hundred sacks of wheat. He said, take your bill and write in 80. Now here's a surprise. The master praised the crooked manager, and why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right, using every, every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you'll live really live, and not complacently just get by on good behavior. Interesting. That's through verse 9. And then the message continues, Jesus went on to make these comments. If you're honest in small things, you'll be honest in big things. If you're a crook in small things, you'll be a crook in big things. If you're not honest in small jobs, who will put you in charge of the store? Hmm. No worker can serve two bosses. Either he'll hate the first and love the second, or adore the first and despise the second. You can't serve both God. Wait for it. Well, that's not in there. That's me. But you can't serve both God and the bank. Well, I found that very helpful and very interesting. Now, to be sure, if you look at the paragraphs, he didn't divide it the way I suggested. He he connected verses 8 and 9 together in one paragraph, and, and that's okay. It still helped me begin to think about this, because there's a, definitely a transition going on there from parable to wisdom sayings. So let's take a look at these verses and at, at the um, story, particularly. We'll start with the parable and focus probably most of our time on it. We'll take a look at that and see what it can help us understand about what Jesus is trying to say to us. So we start out, and we see that Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he talks about a rich man, and the rich man heard by the grapevine or got an accusation. Some of us, we might think of that as a rumor, but he heard that his manager was mishandling his responsibilities. 
uh, doing something inappropriate. It's not really that specific. The message makes it sound like it's very specific. It's not really that specific in terms of what he was doing, but he wasn't doing right. And so he confronted the manager, you know, and he said, what's this I hear? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. So what's going on here is he says to him, I hear these things and I want you to bring me the books and show me what's really going on so I'll know what's happening. And that's going to be your wrap up in terms of your employment, because once I get that from you, you're gone. Now, we might think if somebody was mishandling things, we would fire them on the spot and figure it out later. It wasn't quite that simple in those days because the manager really had the master's full confidence, the rich man here had turned everything over to him. That wasn't unusual in those days. That was a common practice that someone would be in charge of someone else's affairs and they would be expected to take care of them. That kind of stuff happens today too. So the manager went out and, and knew he was in trouble and he knew he had to get those things, things ready, those documents, that report ready for the rich man. And he's kind of trying to figure out what to do. Verse three, what will I do since my man master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Uh, so he's, he's kind of at wit's end. What's he going to do now, now? Now what he's talking about here is he's too weak to dig. Well, okay. So maybe his age kept him from being able to do that. That's possible. We don't know that for sure. He says he's too ashamed to beg. Certainly whatever's going on here is he's realizing that he's about to be turned out of an honorable position. And there is certainly a level of shame associated with that. And certainly he expects that now he will be in trouble because he'll have to find a way to sustain his life by some lower status work of some kind. And he really doesn't want to lose his honored place in the community because that was so important in those days. It was an honor and shame culture. So he, he comes up with an idea, and we read that. He says, I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So what he does is he calls in the master's debtors, the people that owe the master some money. So he asked them what debt they owed him, and, and then he reduced the debt by, in one case, 50%, in another case, 20%. Now, this was no small amount of money. A lot of times we think about the New Testament, we think about people who didn't have too much in the way of money or resources, and many of them did not. But this story, Jesus just started out by describing the man as a rich man. And we're talking about a lot of money here, a lot that's involved. So, so when he talks about the, the uh, olive oil, he says, how much is it? And he has a large debt, about 875 gallons or 3,000 liters, if you prefer, of olive oil. Well, that's worth a lot of money. It's worth over three years' pay for a daily worker in that time. So you can see three years' pay for a daily worker. It's not a small amount of money. It's a big amount of money. In the same way, when he asked about the grain, we discovered that, um, well, it's a lot of grain. It's the amount of wheat that they would have harvested from about a hundred acres. So it's a, it's a lot of money, a lot of money at stake here. And so when the manager reduces the debt, he's giving them a significant benefit. 
Interestingly enough, it's about the same in monetary value between the olive oil and the wheat. The olive oil was from a large, would have been from a large grove. The amount involved would have been from, from a large grove. And the wheat would have represented about um, the a half rent share in those days of almost 200 acres. So it's a big amount of money. The, the large olive grove that's described here would have been yielding about that amount of olive oil. So you get the idea. We're not talking about small amounts of money. We're talking about quite a lot amount of money. So he calls in these men who owed his master, the rich man, some money. And after he has clarified what they owe, he says, here, take and change it. Change it from 100 to 50. Change it from 100 to 80. Now, what's going on here? Now, to us, that's really suspicious, and I'm not defending the behavior. Nowhere in the parable is the behavior suspended or defended. But what's going on here is, is these documents were written by the debtor. So the person who owed the money to the rich man would write out his own paper declaring what he owed. Now, that was practical because when you write down in your own handwriting what you owe, it's very difficult later for you to come in and say, no, that wasn't what we agreed on. And so there was a very, very careful and uh, well thought out idea here to write that down so they could write it down and then they could not dispute it later on. So in both cases, the debtors changed what they owed. Now, it likely would not have taken a lot of change to do that. It would not have been uh, particularly noticeable, some people say, on the documents. And so the master might not have realized what was happening unless he found out in another way. Well, later, it seems like um, he did find out and he understood what was going on. And that's something we need to clarify when we get there. But but here we understand that the people that owed the money are getting a very significant benefit because there's a lot of money involved in this. And so they were really glad to have gotten that benefit. That doesn't mean that the steward did the right thing. Now, some people argue that, well, he was doing the right thing because those guys had probably been overcharged. Well, there's no evidence in the parable to say that. Now, some people have said, well, what he was doing was simply taking off the interest that had been charged on the on the loan, and and that way conforming to the uh, law that God had given His people, the Mosaic law. But there's no real certainty of that. They weren't allowed to charge usurious interest in those days, so uh, people think that might have been what it was. There's there's no real way of knowing. What we do know is that their debt was significantly reduced significantly. Now, again, we should remind ourselves, this does not mean that the servant suddenly is free of suspicion for his earlier behavior. That doesn't mean that at all. When we aren't saying that what he did was right, what we are saying is that in, in verse 8, the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. So the rich man, the master, praised the manager for his clever solution to his problem. Didn't say it's right. Didn't say what he did was right in either case. But it does say that the master thought he was pretty pretty smart in figuring out how to handle that. So 
when he commended the rich man, what's going on with that? Well, you would think the rich man, having been suspicious in the first place, and then obviously based on the context, understanding what his manager had done by reducing these debts, would have been furious and would have pressed charges or something against him. But see, the manager was so shrewd that he accomplished a couple of things. Not only did he ingratiate himself to those debtors, something we'll talk about in a minute, but he made the manager, he made the rich man, the manager made the rich man look very generous. And so in the eyes of the people around, he was admired because he was generous. And so the servant in securing his own future had kind of trapped the rich man into letting it stand because the rich man looked good because of what he had done. And so how could he go back on that? So there's a certain amount of um, gamesmanship, I guess you'd say, going on here. And the rich man praised the servant because he figured out how to play the game. In other words, the manager had manipulated events to make himself bulletproof. Yes, he was losing his job for sure, but the rich man could do nothing but commend him because the manager made the rich man look good. And then, of course, he ingratiated himself with the rich man's debtors. And that brings us to the idea of reciprocity. And we, we in our country, our culture, I should say, don't necessarily think about things in this same way. But there was a huge, huge cultural understanding in those days of reciprocity or of, of, uh, master-patron relationships. So here the rich man was the guy on top and the, the, and the patron to the servant. And so the servant was beholden to the rich man, and so he benefited from the rich man's confidence. And that relationship resulted in a reciprocity. And so when the, when the manager didn't do right, he really violated that reciprocity. But then by bringing in these other men and lowering their debts, he set up a separate reciprocity where now they had received the benefit of his kindness. And so they were honor bound in a sense to help this man and to provide a favor for him. You know, it's, it's our way of thinking. It's you do me a favor, I do you a favor. Well, it's much more involved than that in ancient times. We th we do a favor for each other, and then we go on our merry way, and we don't have any more obligation. This kind of reciprocity was a an obligation that that sort of resulted in everybody holding hands with each other. It's what kept the community together, the way they helped each other. It's the way they they operate for all practical means was based on reciprocity. And, and it was really a, the glue, I guess you might say, that, that kept people together. So, so what, what kind of conclusion can we come to about this? Well, there's a few more things we want to talk about, but, but just up to this point, what, what can we gather from this? Well, I, I think that really Jesus' conclusion here is well summarized when the master praised the unrighteous master because he had acted shrewdly. And then Jesus says, for the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I think right there, this idea that the, that the manager, the unrighteous manager was shrewd is well explained. 
because the rich man praised him because he figured out how to get out of a bad situation, and he left the rich man looking good. And then Jesus comes along and says, just like this manager was smart enough to figure out how to get out of a tight spot, losing his job and wondering what he would do from there, and in, and in, in brilliant fashion figured out how to make the rich man look good, keep him from any further recrimination, and also provide a future for himself because now these debtors, and we don't know how many there were, there were two in the story, conceivably if this was a real event, there would have been more, but now these debtors were obligated to help the manager because of the concept of the cultural understanding of reciprocity. So I think what Jesus is saying here is um, street smarts really matter. And he's saying that sometimes good people don't have enough street smarts. Or in another way, Jesus might be saying it, because he says here, for the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. So he's saying people like this dishonest manager know how to manage things and their life and get along better than, than the people who are the children of light or God's people. And he's saying that we need to learn a lesson from that and smarten up out there, people. Smarten up. See, maybe what Jesus is saying is, don't be naive. Don't be naive. Oh, there's a message for the church today. Don't be naive. You see, I think that's true for a lot of us. We tend to not realize what's going around us, and we tend to not respond appropriately. So, well, we're going to take a break. We've covered a lot of ground. We've gone through this rather challenging parable. We'll come back to it and then hopefully get to 10 Things I Think. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. You're listening to Faith Is, and we'll be right back. Stay with us. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. Now we invite you friends to invest some of your time 
with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. This is Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is the place where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And today we've been looking at one of the more challenging parables that Jesus told and trying to sort out its interpretation. And we kind of came to the conclusion, it's rather stark conclusion, a rather straightforward thing that Jesus seems to be saying to us here is that we need to not be naive. We need to smarten up. We need to realize that things are as they are, and and we shouldn't be uh, surprised by that, confused by that, dismayed by that. We need to uh, uh, take all that stuff seriously and to, and to help ourselves make good sense of what what's going on around us. I mean, sometimes Christian people look at things with you know, the old saying, rose-colored glasses. And we need to make sure we we look at things straight on, heads up, uh, unflinchingly. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. A lot of other people do that better than, than God's people, and we need to, to be careful about that. So following that conclusion and following the, the statement in, in Luke chapter 8, verse 1, where the master praised the unrighteous manager because of his shrewd behavior— his clever way of getting himself out of a problem. Then it's Jesus talking all the way through here. And Jesus goes on then to say, for the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And that's where I came to the conclusion that what Jesus is really doing here is challenging us to get our act together and to pay attention and to not be deceived. I'd like to read from the message that paragraph just to help us going forward to begin to now transition to considering these wisdom sayings that Jesus puts in here, what I'm calling wisdom sayings. Uh, And verse 8 in the message starts out this way. Now, here's a surprise. The manager praised the crooked, I'm sorry, the master praised the crooked manager. And why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right, using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials, so you'll live, really live, and not complacently just get by on good behavior. So Jesus is really emphasizing that in the in the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message that we need to to be smart about things and and to pay attention to what's going on to be creative about the way we approach things and uh, not just expect to kind of get by but we need to do it the right way. We don't need to do it the wrong way, not in an underhanded fashion like the like that shrewd manager did. And then Jesus goes on and here I want to switch and keep reading from the message, he goes on to give what what I described earlier as some wisdom sayings. And um, they make a lot of sense, and they should help us. If you're honest in small things, you'll be honest in big things. If you're a crook in small things, you'll be a crook in big things. Well, what's Jesus saying? 
you know, other other translations talk about how if you're faithful in a little, you'll be faithful in much, or if you're not faithful or unrighteous, some use in little, then you'll be unrighteous in much. What Jesus is just saying is, look, take care of the small things because it's really revealing your character. You think you'll do better when you have a big thing if you're if you're dishonest with the small things? If you're a crook in the small things, you think when you get big things, you'll stop being a crook? Uh, no, not so fast. A wisdom saying. He goes on to say, if you're not honest in small jobs, who will put you in charge of the store? <laughs> well, that's that's kind of an interesting way of saying that. Now, um, the, the more standard translations put it in ways that, that maybe help us better, but I just think that gives us a little breath, breath of fresh air on that. So uh, let's see, what if we look at verse 11? So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? Now there it starts out talking about money, and then it ends up with what is genuine. Well, what's that about? Well, that's about if you can't handle things in the world around you, Who's going to trust you with something eternal, with that which about that which really matters? Now we need to take that pretty seriously. Verse twelve, and if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? Uh, so you need to take care of other people's stuff, because if you don't, who's going to trust you with stuff of your own? That's that's pretty good wisdom. I think we probably teach our children that. And then he concludes this by saying, no servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Isn't that interesting and obvious? In our days, how many people are so concerned about money that they can't find a dime for God? A dime? Yeah, a dime. A dime out of every dollar, even 10%. And we put it that way, it doesn't sound like very much, to, does it? And it's not. It's just what God is saying that we need to give to him. And he talks about that in other places in the Bible. But what he's saying is, you can't serve God and money. Who's going to be your God? God or money? Would you put money ahead of eternal reward? You know, back in verse 9, he says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Now, wh now what's that? It's, it's really odd. He talks about money and then eternal dwellings. Well, what's he saying? Handle your money right, so that when you stand before God, you'll be right. You remember it says, another place in the scripture, store up treasures in heaven? Yeah, that's what he's talking about, and the same idea here, so that we understand that we don't want to get trapped by worshiping money or making money our God. And we need to realize that we can't serve both God and money. Important wisdom sayings from Jesus. And I think we need to we need to take those to heart, don't you? I think it's a huge benefit for us that Jesus comes along and gives us a straight answer. Don't be naive. And by the way, here's what you shouldn't be naive about. And then he lists those wisdom sayings. And they cut right to the heart of some of the things that we do and don't do. Cut right to the heart about faithfulness. Right to the heart about money. Right to, to the heart about how we hand, handle the possessions of other people. Do we handle them like they're our own? Right to the heart of what master do we serve? Uh, it's a pretty good thing that Jesus tells us there. 
pretty helpful information. He's saying you need to be wise about the things that matter, and these are some of the things that really matter. Remember how shrewd the unrighteous servant was. Now you need to be just as smart, just as street smart about the things that I'm telling you matter and about the challenge I'm giving you. So I think that parable turns out pretty insightful, don't you? Starts out a little challenging. We don't quite understand the context of all that's going on. We certainly at first glance wouldn't understand the money involved, wow, or the motivation for the for the manager to mark down all those debts. He was looking out for his future, and we wouldn't have understood how that worked because there's no guarantee in our culture that would help somebody like that. But it did him. So, all right, well, let's tra tra transition, easy for me to say, let's transition into 10 things I think. I think about a lot of things, and these are kind of random things, and you may not like these things. And you may say, okay, move along. Well, we'll take them reasonably quickly so we can understand them. But the first thing that's been on my mind lately, and and uh, I, th I think it applies to wherever you live, okay? and But it applies here, and it's just been irritating me. So I just want to tell you about it. And if maybe it irritates, this kind of stuff irritates you where you live. But it's outrageous that our school board here where I live voted to increase our taxes for schools by 17% percent. Now, here we are. We all know that inflation's raging. We all know that families are struggling to make sure they can pay the bills, put gas in their cars, buy groceries for their kids. And here's a school board that's raising taxes by 17 percent. That's just, that's just amazingly tone deaf, amazingly uh, out of touch, it seems to me. Now, you might say, well, what's that got to do with faith? What's that got to do with, with anything in the Bible? Well, taxes are something the Bible talks about, and it's well illustrated by a story in 1 Kings where a new king came to power. His name was Rehoboam, and he was asking two sets of advisors what he should do. Should he lower taxes or should he increase taxes? Well, you can go read the story, and there's a little bit more to it than what I'm telling you. Well, actually, quite a lot more to it than what I'm telling you. But he ends up deciding to raise taxes and crush the people with a load of taxes. And it does not end well. You can go read the story. You'll see how it ends. But my point is, God does care about all those kinds of things. And, and it amazes me that we have people that will vote for a 17% tax increase in times like this. It doesn't make sense to me. Now, I know some of you are thinking, but the kids need an education. Yes, they do. But I know enough about what goes on in my county here in Florida to know that they don't need 17% more. They need to use what they have more wisely, a lot more wisely. And I also know that they could have kept the rate the same and put in a savings program to demonstrate to the people that they cared about the people. But no, they took the path and outlined in 1 Kings 12. You see, how many of us, when we run into financial challenges, we find ways to reduce our spending? Maybe by five cents out of every dollar or maybe out of 10 cents out of every dollar. We realize we have to, to cut back. 
I mean, when gas prices are what, some places three times what they were, then we realize we have to find a way to cut back other places. And we do. We do. We just figure it out. Well, if we can figure it out, so can they. So anyway, that's my little rant about taxes. Um, and I think it's outrageous that we don't have people representing us that, that understand that better and behave better. Uh, second thing that I was thinking this week is that, that boys and their dogs are a wonder to behold. We've got a couple of boys on our street and they're, they're out every now and then. I don't know that I see them every day, but most every day walking their dogs. And um, I was just thinking the other day, isn't it remarkable in God's creation how boys and dogs just seem to go together? Now, girls and dogs go together sometimes too. I, I get that. I'm not picking on the girls by leaving them out. I'm just saying I notice these boys and it's just kind of remarkable that that's something that's good for boys is to have a dog. And um, I just think that's just kind of one of God's wonders for us to enjoy. So when you see a boy with his dog, kind of enjoy that, okay? Third thing I was thinking about, I, I got a little um, magazine type thing in the mail from a college I'm familiar with. And it talked about a man in there who I met many years ago. He actually sang in the choir I directed many years ago. And he was a missionary to Papua New Guinea. And uh, I was kind of um, in awe of, of him as having been a missionary. And I'd heard about him and, you know, he was just kind of bigger than life. Well, it turns out he was a regular guy and a very nice guy. And, and I was really really pleased to get acquainted with him while we were there living in that city. His uh, wife actually was teaching at a Christian school where my daughter went to school and my daughter was in her class. So we got a little acquainted with them. But it reminded me when I read that article that missionaries really are heroes and we should not forget them or overlook their contribution to the world. Now, I know there's been a lot of talk about the abuses that missionaries were involved in years ago. I'm, I'm not overlooking mistakes made. Don't misunderstand that. But there are a lot of good people that have contributed a lot to, to the outreach and to helping people around the world. This man was, he, he did remarkable things. And, and my aunt, I have an aunt who was a missionary years ago, and uh, her courage amazes me. And I just admire missionaries for what they do. I could never be one. Uh, a lot of reasons for that. We don't need to get into that. It's just I'm not as good as they are. Uh, and I just think we need to give thanks for that and, and to recognize them as, as some of the heroes of, of our world, of our times. The fourth thing I was thinking was the result of a conference I attended this week. I was invited back in July to attend a pro-life conference. So on Tuesday of this week, I drove to Naples and attended this conference. I really didn't know what to expect because I don't remember if I've ever attended a pro-life conference. That's kind of a terrible admission, isn't it? I don't remember ever attending a pro-life conference in my life, but I was pleased to go to this one. It was short. It was just in the morning, but they had some really interesting speakers there and, and very challenging and insightful and helpful. And one of them was talking about how we need to think about the ways we communicate, the words we use to express the things that are important to us. And she had some very insightful things to talk about how we had been manipulated in the past by the people who were in favor of abortion, and they had used language to manipulate us to think incorrectly about it. And she was trying to help us say, you know, we can change some things to help people think better about it. And so one of the things that she said was, 
we have often used in recent times in referring to a woman who is expecting a baby, we have often said she is pregnant. Well, that's a word we've often used. A lot of us have used. It's not an unusual lang- uh, use of language in our world. We frequently refer, someone will say, oh, did you hear so-and-so is pregnant? And, and this lady said, you know, let's replace the word pregnant with the idea of with child. So that you say to someone, oh, did you hear so-and-so is going to be a grandmother because her daughter is with child instead of her daughter is pregnant? I thought that was a brilliant insight. And I'm still working on how to make that, that transition. She cited and, and their organization cited some references in the Bible that, that used the phrase with child. I thought, that's very interesting. I want to explore that some more, and I will. But I thought, you know, no matter what I find out from their Bible references, that's still a very good way to refer to, to that. That when a person is expecting a baby, we could say they're expecting a baby, or we could say they are with child. I thought it's so insightful. And they also said that that when a woman is with child, there are two beating hearts sharing sacred space. And I thought, you know, that's another brilliant way of saying that. Two beating hearts sharing sacred space, because God sees the unformed bodies of all those babies. God knows about those people that are yet unborn. Two beating hearts sharing sacred space. I just thought that was really good. And that idea of referring to people as being with child, I thought that was so very helpful. So maybe you can find some usefulness for that. Maybe you'd consider making that a part of your vocabulary. Tell your friends, ask them what they think. Maybe they'd agree with you, and maybe we could start a movement uh, or or be part of the movement this this organization has started to help people think differently and, and speak differently about the babies that are on the way that we eagerly anticipate. Well, number five of the 10 things I think this week is sparked by a little conversation I had last night. And and I don't often say this because I don't want people to think that I'm one way or another. I, I try to be careful not to impose my preferences on people. But I think that hymns are a treasure. The hymns of the church are a treasure, both musically and especially the text. And I don't. somebody asked me if I had a favorite one, and I don't know that I have a favorite one. But I'm telling you, we dare not we dare not lose that tradition of hymns. We dare not lose that that body of of musical language represented in our hymns. And, and I ho- hope we can preserve them. Now, I understand their musical settings aren't what people tend to like today. And some of you are turning your nose up even now when I'm thinking about this. But, you know, you can come to appreciate different types of music. And you can especially come to appreciate a well-written text. And a lot of them come out right out of the scriptures. And we need to acknowledge that. And we need to celebrate that because they matter. So hymns are a treasure. Six things I think, uh, or the sixth thing that I think of my list of 10 is that, uh, okay, here you go. Some of the rest of you are going to roll your eyes again. So just get ready for it so you'll be ready. All right, here we go. I think football teams teach us a lot about adversity football. Here you go again. Well, I don't mean to overdo football. I hope I don't overdo, but it's, but it's that time of the year. And you know, football teams have a next man up mentality and a keep moving forward. I'm always amazed. And I've noticed it this year. I'm always amazed that teams will have injuries sometimes before the season starts, 
sometimes in the opening game or games of the season, someone that's important to the team gets hurt. But the team has to keep moving forward. They can't just stop and say, oh, my, we've lost our best player. They have to keep moving forward. The next person on the team has to step up. There's going to be a game next week. And sometimes we in life, and maybe this is partly what I was thinking about this because of the parable we talked about. Sometimes we in life, we, we park in places we shouldn't park. And Jesus is saying, smarten up, people. Keep moving. You can. You don't need to be stuck. And that brings me to the seventh thing that I think. I think we don't ask this question often enough. Here's the question. What does this make possible? I think a lot of times we come up against difficulties in our lives. You've come up against them. I've come up against them. I don't think any of us handles it perfectly. But I try to remind myself, and maybe you'll need to remind me sometime, when I come up against a difficulty, particularly one I can't get through, I need to ask, what does this make possible? And think about what I can do, not about what I've lost or what's difficult. The eighth thing I think, my favorite proverb that's not in the Bible. Well, we've been in our men's group on Wednesday. We have a men's breakfast and then a Bible study. We've been uh, reading our way and, t- and talking about the Proverbs. So we, we're, I think we're in Proverbs chapter 25 this week. So we've been at it a while. But uh, there's a lot of wisdom there. And, and, you know, every now and then we remind ourselves we want to live lives of wisdom. But uh, I was thinking about this this week. My favorite proverb that's not in the Bible, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape. I just love that. I say that way too often. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape. Isn't that good? Isn't that something we can be? Sure it is. And, and that's really, I hadn't thought about it till just now, that's really related to that question, what does this make possible? Because it reminds us to be flexible in the midst of difficulties. So when we come up against something, if we're going to be blessed as a flexible person and not be bent out of shape, then what we need to ask is, okay, this is a tough one, but what does this make possible? What does this make possible? I hope that helps. It really has helped me a lot of times. And I think I'm going to keep asking myself that question. And I was reminded recently, a little bit of a challenge that's going on here at our church that I need to start asking, what does this make possible? Instead of being quite as content with the way it is. It's not a major difficulty. Don't begin to wonder, oh, what's going on? It's not any big uh, kerfluffle or anything like that. It's just something we got to work on. And uh, I got to think about what does this make possible? Number nine of the 10 things I think this week. uh, People think, well, you think this all the time. Yeah, there are way too many books to read and way too little time. I mean, there really are. Every time I turn around, there's another interesting book that's out there. And if you... If you are one of those people that doesn't read, I just want to challenge you to read. Find a book and read a book. There's a lot of helpful stuff. Now, some of it's just not helpful. Some of it's the popular fiction. Okay, I get that. But there are some fiction books that are very insightful and helpful. And there's a lot of nonfiction that's good too. So um, find a book and read it. Number 10, 10 things I think. Stop watching the news. I read an article Guy had wrote in response to a book he was he was working his way through. And, and the author of the book, and I don't remember the name of the book, it's another one of those that too many books, too little time. But the author of the book was saying, watching the news is bad for your health. 
And we need to stop doing that. We consume too much news and it's becoming more and more offensive and shocking. So don't listen to all that mainstream stuff. Listen to people that have good sense. You can find that on this network. You can listen and listening is better than watching because listening, you can get the information. Watching tends to have pictures and the pictures tend to be aimed at riling up your emotions. And have you noticed that there are pictures they put out there, what little I notice, because I don't watch hardly any news anymore. I listen to it. But the pictures are more and more shocking and offensive. Now, I'm not, conv I'm not convinced that's because more and more shocking things happen in the world. It might just be that that's what they're doing to try to get you to watch and to get you all excited and riled up because that's what they try to do. They try to push your buttons and get you going. So read the news, listen to reliable sources like what you'll find on this network and let that other stuff go. Your life will be healthier and you'll probably, probably be calmer and you'll enjoy life better. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed those 10 things and allowed me to get that kind of out there. I have other things that I think about that I don't talk about. So I spared you the worst of it, I think. Uh, but we'll be back, back next week with some more, maybe not more 10 things. We'll have to think about that, but certainly more wisdom from God. And I hope you'll go out there and smarten up, just like Jesus said, and be the kind of people that will honor him and demonstrate that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God.